Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. In this episode of Nurses and Hypochondriacs, we're going to be continuing to talk to nurses in politics. And our special guest is Representative Rachel Prusak. She is the Oregon House Rep for District 37. And there's a lot of drama going on now with Oregon due to COVID-19. She's going to go ahead and let us know what's been happening and how her role as a nurse is really helping that out. We're also going to be talking about the Death with Dignity Act, which allows terminally ill Oregonians to end their life through voluntary self-administration of lethal medications expressly prescribed by a physician for that purpose. You won't want to miss this episode, but first, a word from our sponsor. Nurses and nursing students, all healthcare workers really, we have a lot of documents to keep up with, and unfortunately, care facilities don't help much. That's where Nurse Backpack comes in. This app is great. It's easy, it's free, and now you can carry all those licenses, credentials, records, and things your workplace wants on your phone. You can even add work history and other records like CEs. To add or update your info, type it in or photograph the docs front and back. It's really that simple, and then all you have to do is set reminder dates for expirations and renewals. You're putting a lot in there, so Nurse Backpack is already secured for you. Plus, you choose when and if you share your resume. You can send it to yourself, your manager, or as a job application just with a few clicks. You're not a filing cabinet. You're a healthcare professional. Don't let paperwork cause mischiefs or worse. This is the most complete document assistant you can get for healthcare. It's an app, and it's free. Download Nurse Backpack today. And welcome to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Rachel Prusak, and you're the state rep, House District 37 for Oregon. I am. Thank you for having me. Oh, awesome. So excited to have you on. There's lots going on with Oregon, you know, lots more than California, uh, which you would think we would have what's going on in Oregon here in California, but not so much. So, so tell us about yourself first, like why you got into politics, what your background is in nursing. Great. So yeah, again, I'm uh, Representative Rachel Prusak. I have been a nurse for 22 years, a family nurse practitioner for 12 of those years. I um, have worked from everywhere from, you know, rural parts of Louisiana and Hawaii um, to inner city Boston and New York City, um, serving communities across the country. I um, currently work as a family nurse practitioner, um, serving homebound elderly and disabled, practicing primary palliative and hospice care. And I am uh, currently running for my second term as state representative. So every two years you have to keep, you have to run to keep your seat as state representative. So we say run, govern, run. So I'm balancing working as a family nurse practitioner working as a state representative in the time of COVID um, and um, running for re-election, so uh, running a campaign. I um, decided to run for office 
because a representative had um, put a referendum on a ballot which was going to threaten uh, people's health care. And after being engaged for many years as an activist and testifying on behalf of scope of practice um, and public health issues, uh, I decided it was time to run. And so I uh, took on a challenge that um, many had tried to take on before, which was flip a red seat blue and take on an eight-year incumbent. Um, it was really, really, really hard, especially working full-time as a nurse practitioner and doing it. But I just feel like we need more nurses um, in leadership positions uh, on every board, on um, every um, task force, and in our capitals across the country. Excellent. I agree with you 100%, especially right now and with what's going on in the world with COVID and how politicians are handling it and then how nurses are handling it, how hospitals are handling it. It's just mass chaos. And the people that know how to deal with mass chaos are nurses. That's right. That's right. right. We jump into uh, uh, any crisis um, and come up with uh, solutions, for sure. So, so true in many different aspects, in social, in health, and various others. So tell me, what do you do as state representative? Uh, What are your qualifications that you needed to get into the role and what your role is all about? So I think as far as qualifications, I think there's this idea that unless you have experience in politics that you're not supposed to run for office. And I definitely had to overcome those where you think you need to know everything. But ultimately, it's really important that there's varied ideas and that we bring our frontline professional and personal experiences with us as a representative. So for my experiences, um, being sick when I was younger or having a dad face cancer, um, and during that time, um, my family going on food stamps. So really knowing and understanding on a personal level, access to healthcare and access to food, um, dealing with uh, a brother with addiction and knowing how important it is that we address that. And then of course, as a professional um, caring for patients and seeing how they um, can't afford their medications or access care because of costs. Um, and then as, so as far as my everyday job, I take all of those experiences And I used them um, to run for office and say why I should be there. And I really, really believed it. And that's the important part is believing and um, having those convictions. Um, I did two trainings. So I did labor candidate school, which is basically a training to help people run for office that are part of a union. And I am engaged with Oregon Nurses Association Union. And um, I did uh, a MERS training, which trains women to run for office because for so long, um, you know, our system's been run by um, mostly men and mostly retired or mostly independently rich people. And so they don't make it easy for you to run if um, you're not those things. Um, But if you have the training and have the support, um, you can do it. Uh, And then day to day is um, during session, 
So every other year you have your long session, which is full time for six months. And then every other year you have a short session, which is two months. So last year um, I was in the Capitol every day, um, Monday through Thursday, um, serving my constituents where you, um, you know, have committee meetings and hear about uh, potential bills and have the opportunity to ask questions. Um, and then when you pass the bill out of the committee, you vote on them on the House floor. Um, so anything that we are debating, I hear from my constituents. That is why I'm there. I'm there to represent their voice. Of course, I have my own um, personal values that I bring to the job, but my my role is to represent my constituents. So I serve on the health care committee as vice chair, and I serve on um, subcommittee um, ways and means for transportation and economic development. Um, so every day, um, you know, really um, representing your constituents and bringing what they uh, think is important. And that is finding out through phone calls and emails and meetings. But yeah, on any given day, you have meetings every 15 minutes with people wanting to discuss issues. You have committee hearings, you have floor debates. Um, and then Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I would still see my patients. And wow. so, yeah. And then on the off time Intense. that we're not in session, um, some people think you're just not you know, doing anything, but um, it's still almost like a full-time job following up on policies, making sure they're implemented and doing constituent care. And during COVID, um, those calls are about access to unemployment insurance, access to food, um, access to um, safety on the job, uh, rental assistance. So it's a lot. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. It's pretty intense. Um, and you bring up a good point too, because before I was looking uh, in, into running for Los Angeles uh, for one of my districts that I grew up in, and I still do claim residency there, and um, I was following the rep in that district for a long time, and I had seen that he was an attorney. I was like, how do you run for this? You know, do you have to be an attorney? And 15 years ago when I was looking into it, when he got elected, I just knew he was shady, thought he was shady. And I was like, I could do such a better job than this guy because I really care about Los Angeles. You know, I care about the people. I care about the homeless crisis uh, and everything else that's going on there. And I was researching and researching and I kind of let it go because other things came into my path. Um, but then again, I was going to be running this year for 2020 and I, all these people came out of the wood excuse me, woodwork to help me, which was super cool. And the more I found out about it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I should totally do it. Uh, but then again, I kind of let it go because I was like, eh, I kind of want to go into this route and do my more creative stuff, which is really calling to me at this time because it is a ton of work and it is for a special person. So there's a lot going on in Oregon right now with the governor saying one thing about restrictions and about uh, stay at home and quarantine and the mayor saying something else and then going to court about it. Uh, and this is all fresh and hot and new, which I was just reading up about it right before we came on for this interview. Can you speak to any of the COVID crisis that is going on in Oregon and why is there such a... Um, battle about it, either reopening, not reopening, keeping people safe. What's that all about? Yeah, so I could touch about touch upon it a little bit. Um, 
yesterday afternoon, a uh, judge ruled that the executive order for stay home, save lives um, was overstepping the governor's um, powers. And I had people calling me immediately after that had happened. And again, like I'm just on meetings, on calls, caring for patients. So I don't get to touch base outside of my bubble of just problem solving until either someone brings it to my attention or later on in the day, I go on Twitter and catch up on everything. Exactly. So that is how I found out about it was a constituent calling me and saying, I don't, this is scary. Does that mean like, you know, not having to pay rent this month and last month until I get back to work? Is my landlord going to be calling me? Is there going to be lawsuits because we were forced to close and not work? Like what's going to happen? So I then reached out to my caucus and um, the governor's office, and they brought that up to the Supreme Court level. And um, right now, everything is as is. The governor's executive order is in place, which is stay home, save lives, um, and there'll be hearings on it. So it's in flux. But in my opinion, um, our governor did what many governors did across the country, which was how do we flatten the curve? And Oregon is one of the top five states that flatten the curve. Our governor worked with your governor in California and the governor of Washington um, to really make sure that we were on the same path and that we followed um, science and protected people's lives. Um, with that being said, we are starting to reopen county by county, 31 of the 36 counties have been approved to start reopening. And so what that means is as a nurse practitioner, I'm advocating for, yes, we need to reopen because the economic damage that is being done to um, our state is real and people are suffering. But how do we do it so that we're safe? How do we do it so that people that took out PPP loans for their small businesses reopen and stay open and not close again because of a surge? How do we make sure they're supported by our um, local public health departments to make sure that employees, when they come back to work, are protected um, and the business owners are protected. So we've been having these conversations every day, um, all senators and state reps, so all legislators across the state get on a call every day with the Oregon Health Authority and the governor's office and get updates. Um, and then I'm working with my local county and city on how we will reopen um, we are Portland metropolitan area, so the three counties that are really more um, uh, populated haven't reopened yet, but then, of course, there's some things that have reopened across the entire state. So I think we're doing it slowly, cautiously, and carefully, but that does not mean um, we don't know that people are suffering and people are struggling, whether it's isolation, um, living in a long-term care facility or skilled nursing facility, isolation of our elderly living alone, um, those that were you know, living paycheck to paycheck, having to access food banks. We are in a position that we've never been in and we're trying to do all the right things. And, um, you know, most leaders are, are leading with that public health lens, but um, there, there was a lawsuit from some faith-based leaders who, who felt like their rights were being violated. Um, and I think it just opens up a conversation of all different viewpoints. Um, I wish that they were all conversations though, versus the yelling um, and the belittling um, that we see on social media. Oh yeah, that's huge. And it's like what 
what I see happening with COVID is people picking sides instead of just looking at the big picture, which I yeah. think nurses are really good at that. Nurses are really good, like with you and, and Dr. Beth Haney that came on as well. It, you're looking at it through all those aspects, all those different lenses, economical, political, and also health-wise. Whereas I feel that these politicians coming on TV, they're looking at it through one perspective. And that's like, you're, you're just, you yeah. have blinders on. It's like, yeah. it's like a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, economics can add to health issues. It's like everybody knows, everybody in healthcare knows that, that that is like smart. I mean, one of my problems with the uh, public health person in Los Angeles who I've never heard of before COVID, I've never seen her before. Um, and I consider myself huge in public health and in the know because I do this podcast in Los Angeles. And we have huge crisis in Los Angeles with uh, homelessness and there was a typhoid outbreak and all this stuff. I never saw this woman speak out against that or help clear it up. Turns out she just has a public health background and a master's and she's an educator. She's not a nurse. I'm like, let's put a nurse in there. You know, I'm sure the nurse could have cleared stuff up instead of going, oh, well, I don't know. And, and we have a big group of people that decide, of course, Anybody that understands politics knows not just one person makes the decisions. It's a huge group of people that have to decide, which makes things more, much more difficult. At yeah, time. I mean, this is, this is the thing is this shouldn't be political. I don't think there should be lawsuits. And there's, there's several of them happening. I think that um, because we are in a campaign year with a very big presidential election, that the politics has seeped into everything of this public yes. health crisis. And it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I don't disagree with you. And so the more that we um, work together and have leaders with professional and personal experience leading, it's so important. And, and it's so important why we have good judges. Um, it's so important, um, you know, all, all, all the way from judges, governor, state representatives, city council, school boards, um, wherever, wherever there's... Um, decisions being had at a table, we need to make sure nurses are at them. So, so true. And I think now is the greatest time. And like we were talking about before the interview that we started here, it's Florence Nightingale's 200th birthday. It's 2020, the year of the nurse, you know, and boom, there has been no other time where nurses have been so pivotal uh, and seen here. I mean, other than TikTok and people dancing, uh, we do have brains and we do see things. And, and most of us, a lot of us are very well equipped to take care of these problems than some politicians are. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think as long as it's a balanced approach um, and that there's nurses at the table, having varied you know, professional experience is important, but it shouldn't just be all attorneys Exactly. Right. Needs to be balanced. And I think that um, public health departments, at least in Oregon, um, I'd like to give them credit for the hard work that they do. Um, We as states need to make sure they're funded. And unfortunately, people don't think upstream in prevention like public health people do, like nurses do. And so this crisis has highlighted that as well as the the decisions that are made for funding um, public health is so important. And as we face 
budget cuts across this state and across the country, I'm going to constantly talk about that. We need to reset what we what we um, invest in, and it shouldn't be prison. It should be mental health and addiction. Um, so true. You know, it's yes. education and healthcare. Yeah. So, so true. And I think when people think about public health, they think to the 1920s, 1940s, like post-World War II, where it was just focusing on the poor, you know. And and so I think that, um, say, an average American, you know, middle class doesn't even think about that. Like, how does public health affect me? It affects everybody. And I think that narrative needs to be changed as in, and now we're seeing it, it is affecting everybody and not just the poor. That's right. Yeah. COVID-19 has pulled the curtains back of all of the inequities um, and disparities. And one of those being how we invest in public health for sure. So true. So I want to take a segue and go into your personal background as a palliative care nurse and talk about the right to die law a little bit, because I know it got shelved here. I'm not sure what year it was, 2017 or 2018, that it got put on the shelf in California. The law had passed and it was a great thing. We were talking about it, but I don't think people really understood how it worked very well, which I think is why it got shelved. I'm in the process of doing some research on that. Uh, Because like I said, I do want to do a documentary and I'm very curious on that. And death is one of the things that I am very fascinated with because it's something that nobody wants to talk about. Everybody's afraid of, especially with this whole COVID thing. I think people are afraid that they're going to die. And um, with me personally, you know, this is my personal thing and you can can talk to this. Um, People who are afraid to die just have not come to a self-resolution of sorts, you know? Like with me, I always say, uh, would I, if I were to die today, how would I feel? I go, I would feel okay. I would feel very self-satisfied in my life. I know it's not my time yet, but I'd be fine. I'd be fine with it. I have no regrets. Uh, I've created lots of great stuff. I mean, I'm going on to create more great stuff, but you know, um, I'm okay. And that's what doesn't make me so afraid of COVID. So can you go ahead and speak to that? Yeah. So I was a hospice nurse, um, actually in LA for many years, um, before I went back to school to be a nurse practitioner. And then as a family nurse practitioner practiced in internal medicine and primary care and women's health. And I really loved that I got the opportunity to bring my hospice experience back to my career as a nurse practitioner, um, in the job that I'm doing now. So I think, um, what you mentioned is, Um, really the, um, you know, how people view their life is how they view their death. And if they did live in fear, um, or if they have um, issues that have not been resolved, it's really hard to reconcile that. And that's why I think palliative care teams and hospice teams um, are just that, an integrative team. So it's the nurse, it's the chaplain, it's the social worker, it's the clinician, because there is a lot that goes into it. And as far as COVID-19, you know, the discussions that, um, 
you know, I'm having now are the same discussions I've been having forever as a palliative care provider. But again, the curtains have been pulled back and people in the community are realizing that um, anything could potentially take their life versus all the other things we've known, but this, you know, new novel virus. Um, and so they are all um, wondering how to handle that and how to protect themselves. And I'd say that's one of the things that that's a little frustrating to me about the political component of COVID-19 is the mask wearing, right? Like I wear a mask when I'm in public despite being healthy, because I want to protect those around me. I want to protect my patients when I see them. Um, and so this idea that if you're wearing a mask, it's just about protecting you, not others, is where I'm really trying to have those, those conversations, because we, by wearing a mask, is protecting those vulnerable people that could potentially be out because they don't have somebody to do their grocery shopping for them. Um, so really... Um, um, making sure that in this time we are taking care of our patients the way we always have. Um, as far as death with dignity, um, I don't know what's happening in California, but in Oregon, um, you know, we were one of the leaders in that conversation. And I would say that the reason why it's challenged in many places across the country is some people see it as suicide. And so depending on your philosophical or religious um, views, you have a very strong opinion on it. From personal experience working with patients in hospice who have chosen death with dignity, um, you know, you have to be cognitively um, intact, you have to pass a psych exam, and you have to have a, a, a diagnosis that's limited to six months. These are very specific criteria. Um, and then once you meet those, um, you can have access to the medication. And the handful of cases that I've worked with, um, the patients ended up dying on hospice anyhow because it is so strict on how many um, days you have to get the medication, how many days you have for a follow-up. Um, and so we did try to address that in this past session and say that if somebody had a, um, a, a limited uh, uh, prognosis um, that they're uh, time with us on this earth is uh, less than uh, 15 days. They didn't have to go back for a second appointment. And so for, for follow-up for the medication, which has historically been done and still is for most cases. And that even became um, a controversial discussion because once you go back to the original discussion on what, what death with dignity means, which is somebody in a sense, um, you know, hastening their death by choice, people see it as suicide and depending on your beliefs, don't believe in it. So it became a very controversial subject just to have, just to change um, um, some of the wording in the law. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very touchy subject for a lot of people, but one that I've seen um, people take great, um, um, have great respect for when they or their family members actually get to use it in the dying process. Exactly. I'm all for it because I, uh, w once upon a time, I worked in a pediatric skilled nursing facility. And I know these, these kids are, are peds. They can't talk for themselves. They can't um, make decisions for themselves. Lots of them were wards of the state, but it was incredibly sad. I mean, a lot of them were brain dead. 
and they're just sitting there having G-tube feeds and they're in the vicinity of four walls. They can't move, they can't talk. Uh, I mean, what kind of a life is that? And some of these kids were, uh, the, this skilled nursing facility was banking ten, over $10,000 a month per child uh, that were wards of the state. So it was a moneymaker for these people and it was incredibly sad. It was, it was heartbreaking for me to work there. Uh, and I was just like, something needs to be changed, but nobody wants to have those discussions. Unfortunately, there were kids that were pretty okay to be with their parents, but this facility kept them there against their will. So um, I, I guess there was an activist that had gone out with this mother and had fought for her to have her child back with her and in her own custody. Uh, a nurse had told me this, um, year, this was years ago, over 20 years ago, and a nurse had come to me and said, hey, you remember this kid, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, well, she's home with her mom and she's doing way better than she was at that place. And I was like, wow. And they, had, they wouldn't take out a trach. Um, which was really scary. I mean, that's a whole other conversation uh, that I will probably, <laughs> once, <laughs> once things get more going with me, will start to explore politically uh, and kind of bring to um, openness. But yeah, uh, there, there are so many different people that it, it's, they have these crippling lives. And it's just like, I think it's their, you know, if they fit the qualifications, that it is in their right to say, hey, I just want to, you know, go and I'm, I'm ready, you know, and I, and I think that's perfectly okay. I think uh, it's important to constantly um, reevaluate our, our goals of care, um, you know, with every um, health condition that we face throughout our lives and our families' lives. Absolutely. I, I so agree. And I don't think that happens enough. I think they're like, oh, this is how it is. This is how it is for everybody, which I always, uh, my utopia of healthcare is everybody needs to have their own personalized healthcare. Do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about the documentary your husband did about oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, my um, husband actually went to CalArts, so, you know, in your state, and uh, is a filmmaker, and decided when I took on this, um, this journey to run for office while working full-time, um, that he followed me with his camera. Um, so he followed me on the campaign, and he followed me um, in Salem, um, specifically on uh, sensible gun legislation. I'm a, a gun violence um, survivor, and it was an, a bill really important to me, uh, and then uh, paid family leave. Uh, he followed me a lot more than what ended up in the 20-minute documentary, um, and then also at times not enough, because there were certain things that happened that we were like, oh, I wish that was there. I wish you were there for that. But documentary is what it is, which was um, clips of the last two years and it's called um, Represent the Film. We've only screened it twice so far um, for our supporters when we made it. And we're having a screening on May 30th. And of course, it's virtual screenings given COVID-19. So what's great is people from anywhere can watch it. And so on May 30th, it's a, it's a fundraiser for my campaign. So rachelforstaterep.com is my website. Um, on that website, you could follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, where I share information about 
what the campaign's about, why it's important that we have nurses in office, um, why I'm running again, and uh, the documentary kind of, you get a, a glimpse of running for office and working as a nurse practitioner and bringing that lens um, to the Capitol. Uh, so it's, it's really exciting for us to just have finished it and to start sharing it. Um, it was never in my wildest dreams that we were going to use it as like a, a campaign fundraiser, but typically on a campaign, you're knocking doors and having house parties. Um, so as I started running again, and as this, um, film finished, we're starting to merge them with May 30th being um, the first time. Excellent. Oh my God. So excited. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and put a link on uh, the notes for the podcast so that if anybody wants to go ahead and uh, link on and Great. watch and, and uh, participate and also uh, donate to your campaign, they can. And I'll go ahead and also send it out on my email mailing list too. So. That would be great. Yeah. I mean, not every nurse can run for office, but if we um, can inspire and engage nurses to get involved and support um, a candidate that they believe in, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. So having those people um, lift you up is so important. Yeah, it's so important. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the show. Is there anything you'd like to add before we... Um, just that last, that last encouragement of how important it is for um, nurses to be engaged in policy um, decision making. So um, follow what's happening on the federal level through um, our nursing association or nurse practitioner association. Follow what's happening in your local state. Um, for nurses uh, organizations. Um, and then really, if you have the opportunity to lift a candidate up that is running for office on the school board level, city council, county, state, um, Congress, um, get engaged in whatever way you can because it truly is um, a hard thing to do and you, it takes a village. And so just um, anybody listening, find that person that really um, resonates with your values and support them in any way, whether it is phone banking, text banking, letter writing, um, donations, whatever it may be. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on and thank thanks you. for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Stay focused and organized. One way you could do that is by downloading the Nurse Backpack app, which enables you to keep all your credentials in one place and to send it to your nurse manager, your recruiter, or to that next dream job. Download the app today. The link is located in our show notes. The World Health Organization has designated 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. In honor of the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale. And did you know that nurses have an 18 year running streak of being the number one most ethical and honest profession in all of America? Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 is going warp speed into this 2020 Year of the Nurse. We're sponsoring art exhibitions, murals, networking events, movie screenings, and writing webinars to promote the positive image of nurses in the media. We'd love for you to join our team. We're looking for volunteers and sponsors to help us go forward with this amazing journey. For more information, email us at 
nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. And oh, don't forget to go ahead and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. <laughs>